0: Well, it's so great to be here with you. Um, can I just say I love uh, the people at the Carmel campus. They're like family to me. Um, they're an awesome group of people, but they never clap for me. And so thank you so much for doing that. I, I feel like they Charlie Brown me sometimes, like, you know, but, but I feel so good about being here. I, I got to be uh, here with our uh, folks at Noblesville last Saturday night, and that was a great time for me, and so it's good to be back on Sunday morning We're in the last week of this series called The Chosen One. And it's taken out of Isaiah 42, uh, where several hundred years before Jesus was born, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah when he said this He said, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And what we've said throughout this series is like we now have hindsight of 2,000 years of history to see those of us who really studied the scriptures can see that Jesus is the one that God was talking about, that Isaiah was talking about when they made this, when Isaiah made this prophecy, the one that was predicted in this passage. But when Jesus walked the earth, there was a lot of question about who he really was. Now, not everyone, not even most of the Jewish people who had grown up hearing this prophecy, knowing that there was a Messiah or a Savior who was coming to them, not everyone who lived back then believed that Jesus was that one. In fact, most of them didn't. And today, even today, many people still have questions about who Jesus is. Is he really the chosen one? And so what we've been doing over these five weeks is we've been looking at five statements. We thought, what better way to find out who Jesus really was than to look at who Jesus said he was? And so we've taken five statements. Uh, There are more than five, but from the New Testament, what we call the I am statements of Jesus. So there are five places. uh, There are more, there are several, but we've taken five of these when Jesus says, I am dot, 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 and we're looking at these statements to define who Jesus really was. And the one that we've come to today probably presents the biggest stumbling block for most people with Christianity. It's the one that makes more people call our belief system, my belief system, into question. It makes us look exclusive and intolerant, but it's also the one that's probably the most critical to understanding what our future holds. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start and end, actually, in John 14. So you can open them uh, there. If you've got an, uh, some device that you read your Bible on, go ahead and open that up. Um, I think it's going to be critical. You might want to take notes in this. this, this is, what's happening is this is the night of the Last Supper. So um, it's the uh, last time that Jesus sits down and eats with his disciples. And Jesus and his disciples had finished eating. Now Judas had already left the table to go betray Jesus. Jesus had walked with these men for about three years, and they really thought they knew and understood who he was. But this night, Jesus starts saying some things that they don't really understand. He he keeps talking about how he's going to go away, and they couldn't go with him. And one of them, one of the 12, Thomas, said, Lord, we don't know the way to where you're going. Show us the way. And that's when Jesus Uh, Says this very decisive, uh, sorry, divisive statement in John fourteen six. He says this. Jesus answered, "I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." There it is, the stumbling block, the game changer. You know, these men have been walking with Jesus for three years, and they know that when he says the Father, he means God. Like he's talking about, "I am the way to God." Now, these men have seen some amazing things. They've heard some incredible teaching uh, from their rabbi and friend, but now he says that he is the way to God, the only way. And you know that this one brash, outrageous statement had to make them call into question everything that they had seen and everything that they would heard him teach. See, at the time, these Jewish followers of Jesus would have believed that the way to God was through following the law, or the uh, 613 laws from the Torah, what we now know as the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There are 613 laws in there, and, and these Jewish believers knew that if they violated any one of these 613 laws, well, there were any number of priests that were there and ready to make sacrifices to help atone for or pay uh, for those sins, And uh, so you know that they, hearing this, that Jesus says he is the only way to God, you know that that had to bring up some questions. It was a very controversial and very divisive statement at the time. And you know what? It still is, isn't it? And so what happened after that? Well, very soon after, Jesus was arrested. He was brought before the high priest and before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Jerusalem. uh, And he was sentenced to be crucified. And the 11 men that were still part of his entourage after Judas had departed, uh, they just kind of disappeared into the woodwork. They, they went away. They were running for their lives. And even Peter, his closest friend, who, who promised Jesus he would never deny him, did so three times that night. And these disciples watched him be beaten. They saw him crucified. And they, they watched him slowly and painfully die on a Roman cross. And they said nothing. And they did nothing. And at this point, it would have been very easy for the story of Jesus to die, right along with the person of Jesus. They could have gone back to their old lives, gone back to their old families, um, and just reminisced fondly about the three years that they spent with Jesus, but but kept it to themselves uh, so that they could avoid the same fate that befell their friend Jesus. But they didn't. And the story didn't die. It grew because Jesus didn't stay dead. We celebrated that last week at Easter. And the men didn't stay quiet. And eventually Christianity took over much of Jerusalem. And then grew to take over much of the Roman Empire. And kept growing until today. Fully 2 billion people. Or about 1 third of the world's population call themselves Christians. People who believe this statement that Jesus made. That I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's what I want to talk about today. Like how did this small group okay how did this connection group size uh connection group sized group of men eventually grow into the world's dominant religion and why does it make sense for you to believe what they believed You know, I want to take some time before we do that. I want to look at the three most common objections we have to this statement, that people make to this statement, that Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And I think, I hope we'll see that they just don't add up. I've put them in your notes, in your worship program, so if you want to follow along, you can. I have to tell you, it's a little weird for me to put in your notes common objections to what I'm going to preach about, okay? But my hope is that someday you'll look back and see these objections and you'll remember what we talked about here. And so the first argument is this. Aren't all religions alike? I mean, how can Jesus be the only way when really don't most religions kind of teach the same thing? You know, don't they all offer a similar path to God? Now, to address this, we need some background, I think. So there are five major world religions. And we're going to do a little teaching, a little, uh, a little uh, minor re- world religions class here, okay? So there are five major world religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. These account for about 85% of the world's population. Most, most uh, religion scholars would say these are the world's five major uh, religions. Uh, 85% of the world's population. So when you throw atheists and agnostics in there, you're covering pretty much all of the world. Now, it seems natural to believe that any of the adherents of these five major religions, all starting from the same place, could eventually end up together In heaven or someplace at the end of time, okay, and so but let's take a closer look Uh, First of all hinduism hinduism doesn't Really teach of a god, but many gods each taking a different form There's no heaven uh, But it teaches of a reincarnation that allows you to move up or down based on your performance in life So if you have a good life and you do well, you will move up to a higher life form a higher uh, class of life Um, If you don't do well You'll move down uh, maybe even to become an animal, like a dog or or a fish, or if you're really bad, a cat. Okay, that's that's what Hinduism teaches. Totally different. And and Buddhism uh, doesn't believe in a god at all. I, mean, I have to laugh sometimes when people I hear of people who've left Christianity for the uh, simplicity of Buddhism. Anyone who believes that Buddhism is simple hasn't read much on its three gems, or its four noble truths, or its four bodhisattvas, or its five fold path, or its five precepts, or its ten paramitas, or its four sublime states, or its five spiritual faculties, or its five bases of mindfulness, or its six realms, its three signs of existence. And Buddhism doesn't teach of a heaven, but of a state called nirvana, where we all wear plaid and play grunge music, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> No, nirvana is a freedom from suffering, which you can reach on your own if you just follow Buddhism's tenets, if you know what they are. And so that leaves Christianity Judaism and Islam as the three religions that all believe in a God that in some way holds people accountable for how they behave or what they believe. And so many people will look at these three and say, well, basically, they're basically all the same. I mean, after all, Jesus was a Jew and taught at synagogues and temples, and so they have to be close, right? And, and many Muslims claim that they worship the same God as Christians. And maybe you don't know the history of that. Maybe you don't know why, so, so here's why. The book of Genesis tells the story of a man named Abraham. You've probably read the story of Abraham if you've been around the Bible uh, much at all. Abraham, who in many ways is the father of all three of these major faiths. Abraham was promised by God that he and his wife Sarah would be the parents of a great nation. That they would have as many descendants as there were stars in the sky. But his wife, Sarah, couldn't have children. And when they, this didn't happen in their time, they took matters into their own hands. And Sarah gave one of her servants, a woman by the name of Hagar, to Abraham uh, to be another wife of his. Uh, and they had a son named Ishmael. Now, side note, How many times do we get tired of waiting on God and decide to take matters in our own hands? What we're going to see from the story is it didn't work out very well. And so you can read all of this story in Genesis chapter 15, but God promised Abraham he would have his nation, his family, through Sarah. And so after Ishmael was born to Abraham and Hagar, then Sarah had a child, a boy named Isaac. And Sarah became very jealous and expelled Ishmael out of the land that they were living in. But God said that Ishmael would have a nation of his own and that he would get this, have great hostility against all of his brothers. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is the nation of Israel, which is a group that came from the lineage of Isaac, okay, constantly at war with these other groups of people, people that collectively we know as the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael. And Muhammad who's the founder of islam claims to be a descendant of ishmael and so if you ever think you have a cure for all the world wars just know that god says that there will always be conflict between muslims and jews and between muslims and christians and so many people anyway look at these three faiths and assume they're basically all the same they come from the same place none of them can have the exact right doctrine so somewhere in that mix is probably the right answer no one can have a monopoly on the truth But ironically, this idea that no religion holds a monopoly on truth, well, that's a religion. I mean, that's a set of beliefs that you will live by. And uh, the the, the fact that none of these three, you say, have... uh, the, the, uh, exact truth. So there must be some fourth system that I can make up and just take what I want from this one and that one. And, and from my life, uh, well, that'll be the truth for me. Okay. I'll, I'll make the truth and I'll believe what I want out of these faiths. And well, if I can be honest with you, this, that just makes no sense. I mean, if you go so far as to believe that there's a God, you know, that there's, there's an honest God that is a being that he, she, or it created us. You can't just pick or choose the characteristics that you want to put on that God. You can't just take any any appearance, any any behavioral characteristics, and put them on God, that God has to have some characteristics, right? Let me just give you an example. Let's say that you set your friend up on a blind date, and uh, she asks before she goes, uh, what's the guy like? And you say, well, he's... He's dark, got dark hair, and he's muscular, and he's cute, and he's very musical. You'll like that. He's very musical. And when she gets there, he looks less like Adam Levine and more like Adam Sandler. All right? You're going to have some explaining to do because you might say, well, you believe what you want to believe about him, and I'll believe what I want to believe about him. But the truth is, he has some characteristics, some physical features, some behavioral characteristics that distinguish him, right? Well, it's the same thing with God. If you go so far to believe there is one, then he has to have a personality and some character traits and some physical traits to say that God is distant and and judgmental, for instance, uh, but he can also be close and loving. Well, that just makes no sense. Christianity teaches of a God who loved the world so much that he came here in the form of a man, a man named Jesus, his son. And lived a very real human life and died a very real human death so that we could be in a relationship with him. Someone who practices the Muslim religion would never go for that. That God is very distant. That God is too good for that. He would never come here on his own. So it can't be the same God. And so to say that all religions are equally valid ignores these major, very major differences in each one. It's very naive. It doesn't work. And so the second argument is this. Often people will ask this. Well, don't all good people go to heaven? This seems to make some sense, right? I mean, it's what's portrayed in the media all around us. In fact, if you get all of your information about heaven and hell from the movies and sitcoms, this is what you believe, all right? And, and it, it kind of, you know, if you save a puppy, you go to heaven. If you tell a lie, you get struck by lightning and go right to hell, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what we see in the media. I mean, I think I, I think this idea appeals to us because it seems fair. It seems right, doesn't it? I mean, if there's a good God, then He lives in a good place. And he wants to live there with good people. That only makes sense. And because he wants good people, then he cares less about what you believe and more about how you behave during your life. It seems fair. But I want to remind you of something that I'm going to keep coming back to today. You know this if you've been around the world any length of time. Just because it's fair doesn't mean it's true. Right? But I just want to look at this idea that good people go to heaven is fair. Okay? Is it really fair? If that's really fair, then let me ask you this. How good is good enough? Do I have to get an A in life to go to heaven? I mean, Jesus says the road is narrow. I mean, do I have to get a 90%? Is it like high school? I got to get a 90% and get an A to go in? How about 70%? If I'm a C student, I graduate from high school with that. Is that good enough to go to heaven? If 70% of my deeds in life are good, does that do it? I mean, how about 50%? Maybe that makes sense. 50% plus one. If, if I do one more good thing in my life than bad thing, is it like a balance, okay? Is it like I got one more good thing on the balance, that's good, right? And, and who decides? I mean, if it's God, wouldn't it be nice if he were just a little clearer about the whole process? I mean, if it were fair, wouldn't there be some clarity to how this whole operation works? I remember um, when I was in college, I first started studying engineering, and the very first class I took was a class called statics and dynamics. It's one of those classes they take, they give you to weed out all of the people who don't belong in engineering. Um, And the first test I took, out of 100 possible points, I got a 32. If you've never been to college, that's an F, all right? (laughs) The highest score in the class was a 47, out of 100. I didn't think it was fair. But remember, just because it's not fair doesn't mean it's not true, right? I did a lot better the second time I took that class. Um. <laughs> but it would been nice if there were some clarity to what we were going to talk about on that first exam. Let's assume, okay, that God is extremely merciful and that the threshold is only 10%. All right, if 10%, of everything you do in your life, if you do 10% of your life as good deeds, you're in. First of all, that means there are going to be a lot of people in heaven that we don't really expect to see there. Bob? Really? But second is this even if the threshold is as low as 10%, there are going to be people who miss heaven by just one deed. Like one time they don't walk the old lady across the street, one time they didn't give a dollar to that homeless guy is going to make all the difference in their eternity. Just that one deed in their life is going to decide where they spend forever just one good thing, no matter where you set the bar, some people are just going to barely miss it. And the thinking for those people, I promise you, is going to be, it's not fair. God, if I had only known, if you'd only told me how good I had to be, I would have done it. It's not fair. Well, okay, then maybe it's not about good deeds, really. Maybe instead it's about the law. Maybe it's not about Uh, doing the things God tells us to do. Maybe it's about not doing the things he tells us not to do. And so let's look at that. We know we've probably all heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Ten things uh, from the book of Exodus chapter 20 that God tells us to do and not to do. And so here they are. Uh, Have no other gods other than God. Uh, Don't have any idols. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Uh, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We're all really good at that. Um, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, uh, don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his lawn or his brand new Dixie chopper zero turn radius mower with a 40 inch deck. It's only 10 things. But, and don't raise your hand. But I bet none of us have always kept them all. But let me relieve your guilt a little bit. Do you realize that there's nothing... In Scripture that talks about the Ten Commandments, and anywhere in Scripture that talks about your eternity and what happens if you keep those Ten Commandments. And do you realize that there's nothing in any of them that says anything about your eternity if you don't keep them? In fact, there's only one promise that I've found about what happens if you keep these commandments. It's found in the fifth commandment, Exodus 20:12 says this. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. My dad always reminded me of this. He always told me that. He said, boy, if you don't honor me, you ain't going to live very long, right? I never knew it was from the Bible. I just thought it was him, but that's where it's from, you know. There's probably a student out here that needed to hear that this morning. So there are no promises for us for following the commandments as far as our eternity is concerned. But this is the Jewish view, okay? When they look at the law, they look at the Torah, what we now know as the first five books of the Bible. And and that's the holy scripture for the Jewish religion. And there are, see, 613 laws of the Torah. And most Jewish boys would have memorized them all by the age of 13. But there's no promise of an eternity for memorizing them. There's no promise of an eternity for following. And there's no talk of eternal punishment for failing to follow them. And by the time the Apostle Paul came around, you know, the Apostle Paul was a, raised a Jewish boy, and he had studied these scriptures, and he had memorized these scriptures, and but by the time he came around and met Jesus in a very real and amazing way, if you don't know that story, uh, you should read it in the book of Acts, but by the time Paul came around, he started to realize this, that there's no promise in scripture for people who follow these commands, and so in a letter to the church in Rome, he wrote this in Romans 3.20, He said, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So he says, there's no way that anybody can have any righteousness with God just by following the law. But really, the law, what it's good for is to remind us how sinful we are. And and, uh, uh, you can deduce from that how much we need a savior. So there's one other thing about this fairness issue of good people go to heaven, and it's this. No matter what the rules are, and we've already said we don't know, and no matter uh, where the bar is, and we haven't been told, you know, there's gonna come a point in many of our lives where we can no longer get there. For many of us, there would be a time, if this were true, where we'd have either done so many bad things or missed so many opportunities to do good things that we could no longer do enough good to get us into heaven. And so I think that leads us to the third common argument against Jesus being the only way, and it's this. Isn't that view a little narrow-minded? Isn't it arrogant to think you have the only answer? Isn't it, I mean, isn't it unfair? Let's examine that. I mean, in light of everything else that Jesus taught, is it narrow-minded? Yeah, I mean, I think you can make that case. Is it arrogant? Well, it could be unless it's true. You see, Jesus' teachings put us in a really difficult position. You can't really just pick up some of it and leave the rest of it. Uh, The things he said, the things he taught, some of them are brilliant. You turn the other cheek. We love that, right? He said, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I say, love your enemies. That's brilliant. I mean, I love that. That'll catch them off guard, won't it? I mean, you love our enemies. That's great stuff, great advice. A little unconventional, but great stuff. You know, the people that walked with Jesus and that heard him teach in person often said that he taught as one who had authority. They got to see these miracles that he performed and they'd never seen anything like it. But then they heard this, "I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me." And they're forced to decide. Like, who is this guy really? Is he intolerant? Is he arrogant? Or is he the son of God like he says he is? But beyond Jesus' words sounding intolerant, there's something else that bothers us about this idea that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And it's this. What what about people who weren't fortunate enough to be born in a Christian country? I mean, what about people who were born to Hindus in India or Buddhists in China or atheists? I mean, how could a loving God not allow that many people to find him just because they don't believe in Jesus? Doesn't God care about those people? I mean, would a loving God really reject someone who's kind and decent just because of what they believe in? Can I just say that I don't know the answer to that? I don't know exactly why God lets things work out the way he does, but I will admit that there's no way we can understand how great God's grace is. And that there's no way that I care more about those people than he does. There's no way I care more about the eternal destiny of a Hindu than the God that created them. There, there's no way I care more about an atheist than God does. And you know what? You don't either. But here's what I know. First of all, just because it's fair, not fair doesn't mean it's not true, right? But let's take a look at this fairness issue again. John 14, 6 again says this. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I say that's really the fairest way of all. I mean, think about it. First, everyone is welcome. You know, John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but will have eternal life pastor that I I love to read. Erwin Mannis says it this way. He says, people often ask me, can Buddhists get to heaven? Can atheists get to heaven? He goes, absolutely. All those people can get to heaven. They just have to get to know Jesus first. So one, everyone is welcome. Two, everybody gets in the same way. There's no secret line. There's no end around play. There's no footnote in that scripture. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, everybody gets in the same way. And number three, everyone can meet the requirements you know last week we celebrated Easter and as part of that you may have read the story of the crucifixion and the events leading up to the resurrection and in there uh, there's the story told of two men that hang on a cross next to Jesus there when Jesus is crucified there are three crosses and the man to his right and the man to his left are criminals of some sort probably revolutionaries And the story is told in Scripture that one of those men is cursing Jesus and mocking him and saying, you say you're the son of God, get yourself down from there and and get us down too. And then the, the criminal on the other side is saying, now wait a minute, we're getting what we deserve, but he's not. And then he says this, he says, Lord, remember me, he says it to Jesus, Lord, remember me today when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. See, here's this man that has not done anything right in his life. He's being killed for his actions. He clearly doesn't have time to come down and set things right with the God of the universe. He's not gonna be able to do enough good things. He doesn't have the background. He, doesn't, he, he didn't go to Bible college. He, he doesn't have the scriptural knowledge to be able to earn his way into heaven. But Jesus says, because you've called me Lord, because I am the way and the truth and the life, today, you will be in heaven with me. And truly, I think that's the fairest way of all. So here's what happened. Uh, we know from last week, Jesus defeated death He came back from the grave and he appeared to many people, at first to his disciples and then to some other followers. And then Jesus appeared after being crucified to the public. In fact, in a letter to the church in Corinth, the apostle Paul talks about one time when Jesus appeared to over 500 people at the same time. And when Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, he kind of says, hey, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. And so after the disciples see Jesus alive, after they saw him dead, they're emboldened. And these men who were cowards just week before, they were running for their lives. They start going from place to place and preaching the name of Jesus. They keep getting in trouble for it. And in one encounter captured in the book of Acts, we see why they keep at it. Acts 4, uh, 18 through 20. Then they, these are the religious leaders who have brought some of the disciples in to testify about why they're preaching about Jesus. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him, to listen to God? You be the judges. And then he says this, and this is just brilliant. This is just brilliant. If if you don't ever read your Bible, you should read your Bible because there's such good stuff in here. But this is great. He says, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, for these guys, for for the disciples, the men who walked with Jesus, the men who heard him teach, the men who saw him perform miracles, the men who saw him rise from the dead, it's not because of what they believed. It's not because of what they thought or what they had been taught or what they felt. What made all the difference to the disciples is what they had seen and what they would heard. They saw Jesus die, and then they saw him alive. They heard his last cry, and then they heard him speak to them around a campfire. And after that, they could no longer deny that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life. And even today, maybe for you, the best reason for you to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is what you have seen and what you've heard. I mean, I, I've seen what my life is like without Jesus because I spent a lot of time there. And I know what it's like now. And now it's better. I have friends, I saw what they were like before they knew Jesus and I see them now and they're happier. They're, now they have purpose, now they have hope and I, and I can't stop talking about Jesus because of what I have seen and what I've heard. See, the thing about all of this, this, this teaching about being the way, the truth and the life, the cross, the resurrection, it forces a decision. I mean, Jesus' teaching forces a decision. What, what, what do you do with Jesus? You say, I believe in God, great. What do you think about Jesus? Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. In his book, Mere Christianity, the great author C.S. Lewis said it this way. I've used this quote a few times before, so if you're tired of hearing it from me, don't come back the next time I preach here. I don't know, but... C.S. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what about you? What do you believe about Jesus? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he, as he claimed, the Son of God, the one way and the truth... In the life. You have to choose. I mean, You get to decide. But what you decide will make all the difference in your life and in what comes after. He paid the price for you. He paved the way for you to have a relationship with God. Maybe you just need to remember that today. Maybe you just need to be reminded that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Or maybe you're here and you need to accept that gift for the first time. Would you pray with me? father god i thank you for hard teachings i thank you for the times that you call us to a decision we know that life is all about making these decisions and then traveling those paths and lord i just sense that for a lot of people in this room this is one of those times that that we've been wandering our own path and we've got to decide is jesus who he says he is is he the chosen one Uh, the one that was called to bring your spirit to earth or is he just another man that said some, some nice things and some funny things and some foolish things? God, I thank you that you give us the option to choose, that, that you give us free will to decide whether we want to follow him and believe him and trust in him or not. But God, I just pray for the people in this room. I know, personally, God, I'm so thankful for the work of Jesus in my life. And, I, and my friends that are all around me and I can look out at this crowd and see their faces and I, I know what their life was like before Jesus and I know what it's like now and I'm so thankful that you've come into their lives. God, I know that there are people in this room who haven't made that decision yet. They, they just don't know where they stand. And I pray that even this week, even maybe this morning, God, that you would let them know that you're pursuing them, and that you wanna be part of their life, that you wanna be the way and the truth and the life for them. I am so thankful that you've done that for me and for so many of my friends, God. I just pray as we come to you in a time of worship through music that you would touch our hearts, God, and that this would be a celebration, that we would lift these words up to you and that we would mean them, God. And I just thank you that we get the chance to sing to you, to worship you, and to pray to you. We have great confidence that you hear us, God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.